the number one question I get is from particularly younger people saying, I don't really understand what my life's task is. I call that a master your life's task. Please help me, Robert. You have to be patient. It's not going to come like a light bulb in your head. Ah, I was meant to do this. I was meant to write the 48 Laws of Power. That's not how it works. So I like to tell people to go back to their earliest childhood memories of things that really excited them before they got mixed up with parents and teachers and all that other people telling them stuff. Robert Greene is an author and master guide for millions of readers, and some of them very high profile. He's written six international bestsellers that are so powerful, they have become legendary. The Icons is a show where we learn life lessons from those who've achieved iconic success in the locations that bring their stories to life. My name's Tyler Way. We're in Los Angeles. Moments from Robert's door. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Robert Greene, welcome to the Icons by Motiversity. Thank you for having me, Tyler. My pleasure. It's a pleasure for us as well. Yeah, it took a while to get, get this whole thing set up. It uh, makes it that much sweeter when it happens. Okay, all right, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. Now, you wrote books, you know, now looking back, over a couple of decades ago, you started kind of your, your book writing career, and they were immediately captivating. But you started to explore some of the kind of darker side of human nature. What do you think drew you down that path? Well, it's a complicated story, but mostly um, I had been working in Hollywood prior to writing that first book, and that's what kind of drew me to the darker side of human nature, to be honest. Um, But in general, I saw this kind of paradox or this kind of dichotomy in our culture where people don't want to talk about that element pertaining to power, to people in power, to politics, particularly to culture, where it's all supposed to be about the art and everything is so elevated. So it's like, it's a repressed thing, you know. We'll talk about sex, we'll talk about the, you know, any any kind of divergent human behavior, but power and manipulation, ew, no, I don't want to talk about that. And then in the self-help genre, which I never really imagined kind of falling into, but I guess I have, the books tend to kind of soft pedal all of that stuff. It's all about, it's almost as if we're angels and we're not these kind of primates that are hungry for power. And I just saw in my experiences in Hollywood and before Hollywood, I had like 50 different jobs in every imaginable field you can, you know, possible. You know, I worked in a detective agency. I worked in construction. I taught English. I worked in a hotel in Paris, etc. I saw all kinds of power moves. I saw a lot of that dark side in motion. But nobody talks about it. Maybe novelists in fiction or maybe in film, we kind of we kind of go into it. But humans are fascinated with what we repress, right? And so by hitting that nerve, that little thing that we, we don't really want to talk about, but we're secretly fascinated by, I think that's what kind of led to the success of the book. But I've always been fascinated by the dark side of human nature. And now that it's been some time since you wrote The 48 Laws of Power, and obviously you've written a number of books since then, but that was really the start kind of publicly. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you look back differently on those tools? Would you offer them differently? Like this combination of kind of mastering your dark, your dark side and also maybe be playing defense. Do you, how, do, how do you hope people receive those tools? Well, people generally bring to anything in life their own psychology, their own mindset, right? So if you're already a shark type person, if you're already manipulative, you probably won't really need my book and you probably won't read it. But if you do read it, you go, yeah, that's right. That's how I operate. That's how life is. Okay. But for most people, most people in this world are naive, like I was when I entered the work world. Most people don't understand the 48 laws of power. They don't understand that you want to talk less to appear more powerful. They don't understand the dynamic of making people come to you instead of always kind of foisting yourself on others, etc. And that naivete is what gets you into a lot of trouble in life, right? It got me into a lot of trouble. Law number one, never outshine the master. I could, I could sit here and cry and tell you all kinds of tragic stories about how I outshone the master and how miserable it made me, right? So I was one of those people who was a bit naive and didn't understand this kind of secret language that power, that people in power have, right? So a lot of the book is opening it up this world to everyone, right? It used to be only white men of a certain age and a certain social background who had access to this kind of knowledge 
who could have that kind of power. And it kind of pissed me off that, that it was like this secret that nobody wanted to share. I wanted to open up. I wanted to get, end all the hypocrisy. I wanted everybody to see that this is how things operate behind closed doors, etc. So I wrote the book to kind of reveal these secrets, right? The book is really not, I'm not trying to instruct the sharks out there and try to make people more manipulative. I'm trying to make you less naive in your life. And that was sort of the purpose behind the book. And since that's the spirit I wrote it in, it's interesting to see that that's the spirit that most people take it in. I get a lot of emails from readers and most of the emails are, God, you opened my eyes up to something I never really thought about. This has really changed how I look at people and look at the world. It doesn't make me paranoid. It just makes me more aware of myself and what other people are up to. So that was sort of the motivation behind the book. It's helpful to hear because I think that that probably mirrors my experience quite a bit with the book. I, you know, when you read the, the title, you maybe get an impression and, and try to figure out like, you know, what is this book actually helping me do? But then as I picked up the book and started to read it, I probably put myself in that naive camp as well. And so it felt like this is really helping me decode something that I know has been happening, but I haven't really known how to understand what's been happening. And so that's, that's really cool to hear. I've been curious, you know, now that you look back, what do you think has been driving you down this path? Well, you know, sometimes in life you just sort of fall into things. I didn't really intend when I was a young man, when I was 18 and dreaming of my future and being a writer, that this would be the kind of book that I would write. But my experiences in life kind of put me down a particular path. I learned certain lessons and such. And um, I was given this opportunity to write my first book. And I kind of drew upon all of my experience, all of the research I had done, all of my thoughts that had been going on. I was a, a bit old, I have to say, for that writing my first book and having this career change. I was basically in my late 30s, you know. So I had a lot of bad experiences. I had a lot of tough things that I had gone through. So that kind of informed me and it kind of went funneled into this book. It was sort of a, a, a mix of circumstance and good luck. And I was able to draw upon everything that I had learned and all of my skills in life. So sometimes you hit upon something, it feels right, you know, like, Working in Hollywood, I was never comfortable. It didn't feel right. I'm, I'm kind of an entrepreneur at heart. I like working for myself. I don't like working for other people. I like to control what I do. Some of that's a bit negative, whatever, but writing this book, I could control everything. I was the master of my own domain. I didn't have people breathing down my neck, changing everything that I did. I was able to write about what I love, a subject that interests me. I was able to bring all my interest in history. I was, I, I'm basically a failed novelist. So I'm able to now narrate stories in my own way, etc. It was like a perfect fit. And so going from that, I decided to kind of continue in that vein, you know, but I don't, want to, I don't want to be in the position which a lot of people make a mistake of in life, of constantly repeating the same success of formula. So a lot of writers who have a successful book, they then kind of read part two. They redo the same idea and they kind of recycle things because they figure, I don't want to disappoint my audience. I have to continue you know, pleasing them. They were pleased with the first one. I've always followed the laws of power, which is change things up, enter action with boldness. Don't be afraid to do things differently. Adapt your strategy to the circumstance. So every book represents a new challenge to me, a new subject, whether it's seduction or war and strategy or mastering a field or human nature kind of thing. And so it represents a challenge, but it also represents I get to use the kind of format that I've created that fits me so perfectly. I'm an extremely fortunate and blessed person. When I read the newspaper and I see how tough it is out there in the world and how hard people are right now in the, in the particular uh, climate of the work world, I just get down on my hands and knees and I pray that I'm so lucky and so blessed that I was able to land into this kind of perfect job for myself. I wonder how much that is mindset. I mean, you bring up that term and you were talking about the fact that, you know, you were you were working hard, maybe the circumstances weren't working out as well as you wanted to, and then luck arrived. And so kind of these two things came together and maybe you framed it as a challenge. And now, you know, everything that you'd been going through funneled down to writing that book. Yeah. 
what would you offer for those? There's a lot of our viewers who would be like, they're, they're kind of still in that tough circumstances and they're waiting for the luck to arrive. And they're wondering, you know, I've got dreams and the dreams aren't happening fast enough. Like what advice would you offer them given that maybe your dreams started to really materialize in your late thirties? Well, it's never too late. It's better to start earlier on in life. I mean, I wrote a book, Mastery, that deals with that subject. And I try and advise people. It's like the number one question I get is from particularly younger people saying, I don't really understand what my life's task is. I call that a mastery your life's task. Please help me, Robert. The earlier you figure it out, the better off you are. But it can happen later in life. Now, I figured out at an early age that I wanted to write. I didn't know what I wanted to write, but I loved words and I loved writing. And if I didn't have that connection when I was eight years old, all the way into high school and college, I would have been a lost soul. And I empathize with a lot of people who don't have that feeling when they're eight or 18 or in their 20s. But I try to tell people everybody has it. You're just not listening to yourself. You've lost touch with who you are, the core of your being. You're on social media too much. You're listening to what other people are telling you. You're listening to what your parents told you you should be doing in life. You're listening to what your friends think is cool. You're listening to what the culture is all about, you know, the entertainment industry, etc. You got to cut all that shit out. You got to listen to yourself and you got to be a bit bold and you have to embrace what makes you different. I say what makes you weird because I know personally I'm a very weird person. If you saw me at home, you'd go, whoa, he talks to his animals like that. He's talking to his bottle of shampoo when he's showering. That guy's strange. I like it. I don't, I don't mind being weird. I use it to my advantage. I put it in my books. You have weirdness to you, whoever you are. Things that you might sometimes be a little bit ashamed or embarrassed or uncomfortable with, right? But you shouldn't be. What makes you different, what makes you particularly strange, if you want to use another word, is your strength, is your source of power. You've lost touch with it. Let's go back and try and find it. And that's the, that's the, that's the whole problem here. How do you find it? Well, it's a process. You have to be patient. It's not going to come like a light bulb in your head. Ah, I was meant to do this. I was meant to write the 48 Laws of Power. That's not how it works. It takes time. To do anything in life takes time and hours and patience and work. I recommend starting a journal and such and writing down some of the things that I think are important to you. So I like to tell people to go back to their earliest childhood memories of things that really excited them before they got mixed up with parents and teachers and all that other people telling them stuff, you know? Like for me, it was words and language. I just was entranced by the sound of language itself, right? It was like music to me. You had something like that. There's a book I recommend. It's a bit technical, but it's a brilliant book called The Five Frames of Mind by Howard Gardner. The point of this book is that there are five forms of intelligence. We normally associate intelligence with intellectuals, with our Noam Chomsky, with Albert Einstein. And he says, no, intelligence comes in all forms. Working with your hands is a form of intelligence. A carpenter has a high form of intelligence. People who are sports, who are athletic, who use their body, that's another form of intelligence. There's music, there's math, there's language. You have one of these frames of mind. By the way your brain is wired, you you are inclined towards one of them. Figure that out. If you are somebody who's word-oriented and you end up going into a field that's about math or about numbers, you're in for a lot of pain in life right? So you've got to figure that kind of what I call primal connection to some kind of field. You have to look at the things that you love and the things that you hate, right? So early on entering the work world, I figured out that I don't like working for other people. I hate to say it. Some of it, maybe maybe I'm antisocial in my core. I don't know. I hope not. But I don't like working for other people. I don't like all the politics, all the crap you have to put up with. I realized early on, I should got to be working for myself, right? So what you don't like is very instructive to you, right? You're looking at things that are very powerful inside of you, that are emotional. They're not intellectual, they're thoughts. They're, I'm sorry, they're feelings, they're emotions. They're visceral things that you connect to, right? I've always been fascinated by our earliest ancestors. When I was eight years old, I wrote a novel probably the worst novel ever written in the history of mankind. And it was about the first human beings on the planet. And it was written from the point of view of a vulture watching these humans arrive. Stupid idea. But I was fascinated with early history of our origins, our roots, 
when I was very young. And that subject continues to fascinate me. If I ever read an article about, about Neanderthals and all the discoveries going on about their DNA, and I could read that forever. It's so fascinating. You have something like that. I know you do. And I am completely egalitarian. I believe everybody has that. When I wrote the book Mastery, which is what this book is about, to prove my point that everyone has it, I interviewed contemporary masters. And one of them is the woman Temple Grandin, who was born with high-level autism, right? She was going to be hospitalized for her entire life. When she was two or three years old, she had the good luck of finding the right teacher who brought her out of her shell. And she eventually became a, a very um, respected professor of animal research, right? She's absolutely brilliant. And she also studies autism itself. If somebody with that kind of disability, that kind of thing, you know, everything stacked against her, if she can reach, she can figure it out and reach mastery, then I certainly believe everybody has that potential. But I know it doesn't come easy. It's a process and you have to be patient, but you have to put in the work. I, th I think that's a really helpful message for people to hear. I mean, that idea of kind of pursuing what's unique about you, and that might help you figure out exactly what your connection is to something much bigger that feels like it's a pull. I was having a conversation with our production team this morning, mentioning that, it, you know, I, I now essentially speak for a living, but grew up so shy, so oh, really? shy. I didn't speak to anyone outside my family until wow. I was in my teens. And it was always something very unique about me, you know, when you're in that shell at that time. But it wasn't like I was afraid to speak. There was just something else that was happening inside. But by pursuing that, you know, something is materialized. And I think that that's a, an interesting lesson for people who are listening that you've written about a lot of kind of external circumstances, strategy, seduction, power. But it sounds like, you know, if you're thinking about maybe what's getting in the way of somebody pursuing their dreams. It's not necessarily about the external. It's really to start focusing on the internal. Is that, is that fair? Yes, it's, it's, um, that's the starting point, and it's what's going to make you happy and fulfilled in life. But you cannot ignore the social element. So in mastery, I'm talking about you have to have high levels of skill to, to reach those goals that we all want to reach in our career, etc. And I truly believe that fulfilling your career ambitions is going to lead to, to a high sense of fulfillment in your life. Although it doesn't mean that you cannot find that through, through your family, through your children, etc. So the mastery is about your high level of skill, right? And to do that, you have to go through an apprenticeship. You have to learn things over and over and over again. I've spent my apprenticeship was usually about eight to 10 years learning how to write, working in journalism in New York, working in Hollywood, etc. You have to then, you know, learn. maybe you have, perhaps you have a mentor who helps you, etc. But another skill that you cannot ignore is the social. We're social animals. And there are a lot of people in life who ignore that. Maybe because they're shy. And I was very shy as a young man. I was mostly very quite introverted as well. Because they're shy, they just simply lean on their own strength, which is learning something really well. Learning math or learning algorithms or learning how to write, etc. And they ignore the social because they're afraid of it. But you cannot get ahead in this world as a social animal dependent on other people in every aspect of life unless you treat that as another skill as well. So yes, the process of looking inward is absolutely essential. But you cannot disconnect yourself from your teachers, your mentors, your colleagues. You could have all the skill in the world and know your life's task brilliantly. But if you continually alienate people by your boorish behavior, by your insensitivity, all of the skill level in the world will be completely neutralized by your own mistakes. Hmm. As, you, as you talk about, you know, that mixture between inward, outward, and the fact that we're social animals, I think I'm fascinated by our, you know, our ancestors as well, really going back to the start of when we started to work, what was this all about? I mean, when you talk about fulfillment and career, I mean, we weren't doing it for money. Money wasn't invented. We were doing it for something else. And I think that that's a really powerful driver in people's lives. When you go back to that inflection point, writing 48 Laws of Power, that moment in your career, what was the story that was happening in your career at that time? And how did that book materialize? Well, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're going back now to, to the origins of it. We're going back like 27 years and, you know, so I got to kind of dig into <laughs> rewind the clock. I yeah. really have to rewind the clock. But, um, 
You know, I was I was frustrated. I was depressed. I even have to admit I had moments that were slightly suicidal because I knew deep down that I could do something. I was I was different from other people. I had different experiences, you know, and I knew that I there was something I needed to express. There was a purpose to the how my life had unfolded, but I couldn't find it. I had tried everything. I had every tried every form of writing every possible endeavor you can imagine it just didn't click so i was very deeply frustrated and the frustration i tell people is a good thing negative emotions are trying to teach you something they're trying to teach you the opposite something else is going on frustration if i was simply what would be worse than frustration would be despair giving up no hope but frustration is a sign that you haven't given up you you know you can do something but you haven't figured it out So when you have those kind of feelings look at them and there's something positive in that. So I knew that there was something I was meant to do. I just couldn't figure it out when. And so in those circumstances I was fed up with Hollywood. I got to get the hell out of this world. I hate it. I was invited to Italy by my old college friend. I went when I was at Berkeley to go to Italy. He, they were Benetton the company was starting a media school there called Fabrica. He said, "I'll pay you to come to Italy and you're going to help write the catalog that it will launch the school." I go, "What? Italy? I'm there. Fine. No kidding. You, know, you don't have to pay me. I'll do it." So I went there and it was a kind of a miserable, another miserable. I mean, you're in Italy, nothing is miserable. You know, the food's great, you have a cafe, you drink great coffee, great wine, everything. It's beautiful. But the school itself was kind of dysfunctional, like so many things in life. And um I had the good fortune there was another man there who changed the course of my life. I bless him every day. His name is Joost Elfers. He's a Dutchman. I'm still good friends with him. Joost is a book packager, just like a book producer. And one day, the happiest day of my life, the opposite of the day of my stroke, we're walking in Venice, Italy. Beautiful sunny day in the near the Piazza San Marco. We just had a great experience in the library and he goes And his Dijaks and Robert, do you have any ideas for a book? And I just okay, Joost. I started improvising. And what I improvised was basically a book about power and how timeless it is. And I said, you know, people don't dress like they did in the court of Louis the 14th. They don't look like Machiavelli or Cesare Borgia in those outfits. They don't stab people with knives, but it's the same story, it's the same history. And I told him as an example of this the story of Nicolas Fouquet and Louis the 14th which happens to be the opening story of the 48 laws of power about how he threw this lavish party to win over Louis the 14th Nicolas Fouquet and he it was such a successful party that the king Louis thought that his finance minister Fouquet was after his job that people liked him more than the king he the next day he threw him into prison on on trumped up charges and he was in prison the rest of his life never outshine the master never outshine the king yost's eyes lit up because i love it he offered to pay me to live while i wrote the book and we would sell it you know I, these things happen in life so it's luck that i this guy offered me a job really that i met yost but it wasn't luck that i had everything was boiling inside of me and that i was ready for it If he had asked me when I was 24, I would have never been able to come up with it. It just everything fit well. It's like the gods had fated for me to have this. I don't know. To this day it's a mystery to me, but it's like the greatest mystery of all. I want to take that in so many directions. I feel like one of the things that caught me by surprise as I was reading your books was the level of research. And so even to be prepared with a story like that to improvise this idea about I mean it's it's unbelievable, but I'm I'm curious if I think back and I appreciate you opening up some of the emotion you were feeling at that stage in your life frustration depression even sometimes beyond that so you you're in that situation you write this book it starts to catch on and one of the things i find interesting about the 40 laws of power and i don't know if it's urban legend but there's talk about it being banned in certain prisons and how does that feel when you've you've funneled your life these circumstances down and you've written this thing that obviously matters to people and is compelling and then there's all sorts of talk about it in unusual ways like what's your take on all of that on the prison thing yeah you know i get 
emails at least once a week from people in prison. We're getting more and more of them these days, saying how much the book has helped them. And um, I'm, I'm now friends with a lot of rappers. I'm not trying to name drop, but, you know, 50, Cheesy, um, etc. And then I met recently the hottest rapper in London when I was just over in London, Potter, Paper Potter, Potter Paper. Anyway, um, and they, all of them had been in prison. And Rick Ross, etc. had done some time in prison. And uh, I'm deeply empathetic to that kind of predicament. People try to use the fact that it's banned in prison or the prisoners are reading it as an indictment against me, as if I'm evil, as if people who are in prison are inherently evil. And we've forgotten some core aspects of religion, of, of our Judeo-Christian background for many of us, or for all religions, which is forgiveness, which is the idea of redemption. Do we believe that people are inherently irredeemably evil? There probably are some people like that, yes, but a lot of people in prison aren't. They've had terrible circumstances. The quote in the Bible, therefore the God, grace of God go you and I. If you had been raised where I saw 50 being raised in Southside, Queens, in the pressurized circumstances, raised by a grandmother who's trying to raise like 11 grandchildren and her own children, you know, you're on the streets of, of Queens, you, you know, and, and all the drugs going on. You tell me you wouldn't possibly end up in prison. So get rid of your moralizing and your air of superiority. Oh, book's in prison. Therefore, it's an evil book. Therefore, Robert's evil. These are human beings, flesh and blood. You could have ended up like them. You know, I often imagine, what if I had ended up in prison? I often think about that, you know. And people in prison have to... The man I met in London, Potter Paper. God, I wish I could... He was the most amazing person. I, he's fantastic. He's 31 years old. He was basically raised by the state, he, he, a foster kid. He spent half his life in the prison system up until that point. And the guy used the prison library to educate himself, which is a common theme in prisons. He is smarter. He's more together than most people who are out of prison, right? And because the harshness of your circumstances often transforms you. People who have it easy in life never have to work on themselves, right? But people who have the worst circumstances in them, they're either crushed by it or they use it to develop themselves. People like 50, people like Malcolm X, others who've gone through the prison system, even Gandhi used the prison system to kind of elevate himself. So I, I embrace the fact that, it, that the, uh, the disaffected, the marginalized people in my culture are attracted to the book. So I've always been attracted to the margins anyway. But I wear it as a, a badge of honor, I'm afraid. I think that's so powerful. I, I mean, I agree. I think that what's fascinating about books that talk about, you know, that really kind of pull back the curtain on how human nature works. And when I hear you speak about it, it's not like this was, you know, offered in terms of, you know, how do you manipulate the world? But it was almost written out of a place of compassion. Like, how do we understand yeah. what's happening in our own space? And when I was digging into the, the laws of human nature, you bring up terms like narcissism and, and you know, those who would feel like, ah, that's a term that's outside of me. I don't, I don't connect with that. That's not me. That's somebody else. And this idea of get over yourself. I mean, all of us are on that spectrum. All of us have this connection, this innate drive. And when you can embrace that, you can understand it. But when you hold yourself away from it, it feels like it's, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of have this facade on the world or kind of see the world like it's outside of you. Was that a big, important piece of the, of the book? Very much so. So the basic, the most elemental law of human nature is that we deny that we have it, right? It's always the other people. I, oh, I'm not a narcissist. I'm not aggressive. Oh, I don't have a dark side. No, I'm, I'm not irrational. No, no, none of those things, right? So we want to deny it. But it's so insanely irrational. We all come from the same origins. We can trace it back. They've done it genetically to like one woman the source of Homo sapiens, like hundreds of thousands of years ago, were all cut from the same cloth. No matter our culture, no matter our gender, no matter any our period in history, we all have the same genetic components. We are all went through the same evolutionary process, the same brains wired in the same way. So if some people are deep, what I call deep narcissists, no doubt, and they're, they're toxic and they're difficult, but if, one, if some people have that, 
How is it that other people don't have any of it? That's not possible. There must be something within all of us that would make us all prone to becoming deep narcissists. But some people, it triggers, it makes them fall into that deepness. Others were able to save ourselves, right? But if aggression is something that's built into human nature, and I try and go through it, the, the whole history of it, right? So you're wanting to exclude yourself. So, I mean, I get, I, 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 people have posted um, comments on YouTube about my ranting about narcissism. They, they go, well, Robert, you're, you're a snake oil salesman. That's absolutely ridiculous. I'm not a narcissist. You know, 0.5% of people are known to be narcissists. I can bet you that the person saying that is a narcissist, right? Because the fact that you want to deny that you have this quality is a, sign, is a, sen, a, a sure sign that you have it, that you're in denial, that you're trying to shine a great light on yourself. Look, I'm superior. I'm the one person in the world on this planet that doesn't have it. Man, you're a narcissist, right? That is a sure sign of it. So stop denying it. Laws of Human Nature should be a painful book to read. It was a painful book to write because it throws a mirror on yourself. It makes you come to terms with some of your own nooks and crannies that you don't want to look into, right? You don't want to come to terms with the fact that you feel envy. But envy is the most common human emotion of them all. There's a deep history of it. I go into it in the book. Our hunter-gathering um, ancestors, chimpanzees are prone to feeling envy. You feel it 50 times during the day, particularly on social media. You're just denying it. If you deny all of these qualities, how can you ever change yourself? You think that you're a Gandhi, but how can you be, be a Gandhi if you won't like look at yourself and change yourself, right? The only way you can become good or, or kind of overcome some of these qualities is by looking at it, seeing the reality, and then confronting it and then trying to change it. So if I come to terms, which, which I did as writing the book, that yes, Robert, you are a narcissist. You have definite narcissistic tendencies more than you thought. All right, now I'm aware of it. And now I can begin to change it, come to terms with it. It is a difficult thought. I, it reminds me as you're speaking about some of these negative emotions, conversation recently on the show with, with Dan Pink, and he was writing about the power of regret and saying, you know, when you actually embrace those negative emotions, you learn a lot from it. So when you're talking about frustration, when you embrace frustration, you recognize that, you know, there's still something that's driving me, right? It's not fulfilled yet, but it's driving me. And some of these human nature characteristics that feel, you know, probably uncomfortable, but also really illuminating. One of the things I've heard you talk about before is, is deceit and how you can almost get a sense if someone's being deceitful of you with their kind of their reaction to certain statements that you said. Was that something that you started to uncover through this book as well, this kind of connection to deceit and, and human nature? Well, I have to admit, being honest here, I've always been in, in interested in, in deceit. I probably was somebody who was pretty good at it in my 20s, you know? I went through a period like that. I wasn't like a, a, a liar or something, but I, I was kind of an actor. And uh, I'm not going to go deep into this story, but I lived in Paris when I was 21, I worked in a hotel there as a receptionist. And in order to get the job, I had to pretend that I was Irish. And I'm actually a middle-class Jew from Los Angeles. Never been in a church in my life. You know, I don't know what a mass is from anything, you know. I had to pretend I was Irish. It's a long, I'm not gonna go into it, but. You, you, you pulled this off? Pulled it off for a year. Oh, no way. I did, it dated an Irish girl. Yeah, I got another job in another company, still being Irish. That's next level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, so it taught me a lot about the art of deception. And part of the job, part of able to pull it off was I studied. I was terrified of being, so I'm starting to work in the hotel thinking that I'm speaking French because I speak French, that no one will ever know that I'm not really Irish. But then I realized English people stay in the hotel. Irish people stay in the hotel and they hear this funky ass accent. They, you know, this guy's a liar. I'm going to be revealed and it's going to be so embarrassing and shameful. So luckily across the street was an Irish pub. You know, one of those fortunate things in life. I would go there every day. 
I would study the people in there because there were a lot of Irish immigrants in Paris. I would study their mannerisms. I, I'm very good at, at mimicking, hearing the, the tone of their voice. I looked at how they dressed, their mannerisms. I studied it and I got better and better at my accent. At first I had to tell people, well, I kind of spent time in the States, you know. But then I got so good I could fool Irish people. I learned how to dress. I learned how to go to church. I learned how to all the things you know, that made me seem Irish. Uh, it's a bit embarrassing because it's something you can do when you're 21. I would never do that now. I would never feel comfortable doing that now. I'm revealing it to you here. But um, it taught me how easy it is to fool people if you have an air of sincerity and conviction, right? And I tell people, when you look at those around you, particularly politicians or people in the news or in, in the spotlight, and they're so full of conviction, and they're so full of sincerity, etc., they're often covering up something else, right? They're trying to convince themselves of a truth that they know is not true, right? And so conviction is often a sign of somebody who's in a form of self-deception to lead to deception. So the, the kind of my early history, my early training in becoming a different person and being an actor kind of taught me a lot about human nature and, and deception. And um, I'm not saying I'm a master at it, but I'm fascinated by con artists and the whole manipulation of appearances and creating illusions. And I've studied it very deeply. So I'm not saying I'm an expert, but I understand it quite well. And aren't there these kind of like micro expressions? I mean, if I you know, told you I got a promotion, you know, if I could really observe how you'd initially react to that, there'd be cues. Isn't that, you know, the kind of a, a way we can just, you know, sense about deceit? Well, I, I've always been um, very sensitive to that stuff. And so, it, you know, I, I feel like you, you can detect from signs in, in a person's face, whether they're sincere or not, or what's really going on behind the, behind the mask that they're wearing. And I wrote about that in The Laws of Human Nature, we have that ability because so much of human communication is nonverbal. It's a skill that was developed over hundreds of thousands of years by our ancestors before languages invented, reading the thoughts of other people so we could get along before we could express things in words. We are masters at those, picking up those signals. You're just not paying attention. You're not learning it. But it's hard for the face to lie, right? It's even harder for the voice to lie. The voice is the last thing that you can use to lie. I know I had my Irish accent, but if somebody really saw through it, they would see kind of the bullshit that was going on. And, and so it's hard to train the face when you don't really feel joy. When you see you got a promotion and I'm kind of secretly, oh shit, Tyler's doing better than me in life, damn. Yeah, that's great, Tyler. Oh, that's wonderful. Congratulations. The, the kind of tightness there is just revealing that I'm, oh, shit, he's doing better than I am kind of thing, right? Whereas, wow, Tyler, that's fantastic. I'm really happy for you. There's a different look in the face. I just didn't do a good job right there, but there's a different look in the face, right? It's spontaneous. The face lights up. You can detect that from a mile, million miles away, the difference. You're just not paying attention, right? The tone of voice when you're nervous and cramped and the throat kind of closes up is a sign of discomfort, of anxiety, of fear, of even panic. So somebody could be trying to say something full of bluster and confidence, but if their voice is kind of tightening up, it's the, they're feeling the opposite. The voice is very, very hard to lie. The posture... When somebody is talking to you, but their feet are pointing in a different direction, they're not really, they're wanting to get away from you, right? You know, how much the eyes engage, whether they're relaxed, they're slouching. Their sense of power and leadership is all in the body. This is insane language. And great books have been written far greater than my own book. Um, I just wrote a chapter on it about this language of nonverbal behavior, right? Posture, voice facial expression, etc., cetera, and, and actions. So actions are a language that you're not paying attention to. When someone is continually late for an appointment or continually late in delivering work that they're supposed to deliver, that's a sign of passive aggression. That's a sign of some kind of character flaw. And if they do it once, they'll probably do it a second time. If they do it a second time, something's going on, right? 
if their desk is all messy, etc. These are signs of something going on internally. Pay attention to all of these details and it will really help you in life. When you came in today, you know, speaking about emotion and Uh-oh. just body language, but when you came in today, you know, and you sat down and you were saying, you know, I'm wearing this shirt. I asked oh, you about the shirt because oh. I knew about it. No, no, no. I said you were going to reveal something no, about no. my body language. No, but, um, you know, you're, you're wearing a shirt and I'm hoping you can maybe share the story of this shirt. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you're talking about your happiest day of your life yeah. with the book, but also, you know, the hardest day of your life, which was four years ago today, was it not? Yeah, exactly. Four years. August 17, 2018. People are hearing the story of a shirt and they go, God, man, how boring could that be? But basically, I was here in L.A. Um, I was with my girlfriend at the time, now my wife. We just had lunch. And I was getting into the car to drive home. I'm pulling into traffic. And she's seeing all sorts of weird things, like my face is falling. My voice is getting really weird. And I'm kind of looking really strange. She starts freaking out. She's pull over, pull over. No, I'm fine. I start pulling into traffic. I'm driving. She forces me over to the side of the road. And then she told me later that I tried to get out of the car like I was going to do something. And then I went into a coma and I don't remember anything else. She called 911. And fortunately, we were close. An ambulance came by within five, 10 minutes. And I had a blood clot in my neck. So blood wasn't flowing to my brain for a a long enough period of time to create damage, right? So that's a stroke. And um, first of all, I'm frequently alone in life. I swim, I used to, before my stroke, I would swim every two days or so alone in the pool. I hiked a lot, I rode my bike a lot. I'm alone a lot. The fact that I was with her was maybe a 5% chance, right? That 5% chance meant I'm still alive, right? The fact that she figured out really quickly something is wrong and called them saved me from brain damage that would be permanent. I wouldn't be able to talk to you right now. A lot of stroke victims have permanent brain damage. I wouldn't be able to write another book. I'm very, very lucky. And so I'm sorry, the story of the shirt, sorry, it's part of my stroke, my brain doesn't isn't all there. Um, so in order to get to me quickly, They took this shirt and they like cut scissors through it and they cut into pieces and they ripped the shirt off and then they stuck a thing in my neck to make the open up the blood clot and get some blood flowing to my brain, which saved me. And a year and a half afterwards, I suddenly remembered this shirt. I had just gotten it for my birthday a couple months before and I remember, I love that shirt. I really liked it. It It's like so me. And I finally asked her, whatever happened to that shirt? And she kind of got this really strange look on her face. And she told me the story of the scissors and everything. And then I said, oh, well, let me see it. And she went, she got this awful hospital bag and pulled it out. And I could see it was in pieces. And I felt so awful. I said, I love that shirt. Could you like sew it back together for me? She said, you don't want to see that shirt again. Yes, I do. It's a constant reminder of what happened. You know, it's like what they call a memento mori. It's a memory of death, my own fatality, my own mortality. I want that shirt. So she very lovingly sewed it back together. It looks kind of Frankenstein-like. It also looks maybe like high fashion, like Karl Lagerfeld himself designed it or something, you know, but it's not. Um, But, you know, this is the anniversary of it. And, um, you know, it's a very weird kind of series of emotions that go through you because I can still sort of feel that coma sensation, that going, that nearly dying feeling. Like I could feel myself dying at the time, just before the coma happened, just before I fell into a coma. And it kind of comes back to me at this time of year now. And then to remember the day, you know, so damn it, I had such a good life. I was swimming, I was so happy, but I didn't know that I was so happy, I took it for granted. I'm missing all that, man. I miss it so badly not to be able to take a hike. On the other hand, I'm alive. I'm breathing. I'm talking to you. I'm writing another book. I'm kind of able to walk. I'm able to ride my my tricked up tricycle into the hills of Griffith Park, etc. I have a lot to be grateful for. So uh, any kind of mixed emotion like that, pain, 
and gratitude creates something very powerful. And so it's kind of a day for those kind of weird emotions right now. Thanks for sharing. So one of the things that's, you know, strikes you when, you, when somebody goes through your body of work, you know, these unbelievable books full of research is you, you must have some way to stay highly productive, even though you've had success. Do you have routines, rituals that help you, you know, through the mornings, you know, to be productive every day? Well, I think to be a writer, but almost to have any success in any event field, you have to be disciplined and you have to have routines. I call them rituals, things that I repeat every day that feel comfortable to me, that don't feel like they're just boring habits, but they're kind of comforting. So I begin every morning with a deep meditation. I've been doing a form of Zen meditation now for 12 years. It's 45 minutes of sitting on pillows and emptying your mind completely. That's how I start every single day. And then I usually do some form of exercise right after breakfast. I go on my bike ride or I do some kind of physical therapy work. And then I get down to work. Um, often my best hours are in the afternoon. Um, I try not to burn myself out. So riding is very intensive, drains a lot of your energy. So I never do more than three or four hours a day. I can't stomach it. But in those other periods when I'm not riding, I do a lot of research and a lot of reading. And then, you know, so my time is structured around that. And then lunch at the same time and then dinner, my wife and I watch a movie and then basically go to bed. There's not much variety in it. The variety comes from the work itself and the thinking that kind of enriches me and makes me feel like I'm having an experience. But having discipline and routines is a really, really important thing. I think for anybody and I, I you know I've helped people some kind of fashion their own routines in life because you can't just necessarily do what other people doing but I think waking up and doing something like emptying your mind or having some kind of meditation practice is an extremely valuable tool hmm. I started that in I think 2013 every day since then that's the way my morning starts too but when you talk about helping others craft a routine so if somebody who's you know, interested in this, they want to have some kind of morning routine. What, what do you ask them or how do you get them focused to figure that out? Well, everything depends on your circumstances. If you're working for yourself, if you're working at home, <clears throat> that's often the hardest because you have to be very self-disciplined and self-motivated. And so creating an actual literal routine that you write down, that you schedule is very important, right? So I, I advocate the, the meditation as a way to kind of start the day, to empty things out, to empty all the baggage out from the day before and kind of freshen your mind up, right? And then it depends on, I, work, I talk to people about your energy levels. So I am not a morning person, right? My wife is. She wakes up, she's bubbling with theories, ideas, and I am so grumpy and I blah, blah, blah. I ask you, I ask people about when do you feel the most energy, right? And so some people are, it's the morning, you know, the nine to 12. Some people it's like me, four to eight. So let's work on that first. If you're like me, then in the morning, kind of do things that are routine, like answering emails, like paying bills, like taking care of, of business stuff. And then after that, you do, you have time now in the afternoon to do the, the creative stuff. I'm also personally a big believer in taking naps. I take a nap every day. I didn't get to take one here. So that's why I was yawning before I had my tea. But some people aren't nappers. I understand it, but it's a great way of re-energizing yourself in the middle of the day. It just depends on your energy and your work. And then also journaling is very important for say, I, I'm a writer, so I don't want to go anywhere near a journal because please get that pen away from me. Most, if you're not a writer, spending a half hour every day journaling about your day before you go to bed, etc. A ritual before you go to bed is also good. It just depends on who you are, your energy, your individuality, and the kind of work that you do. And then we craft a, a good ritual routine for them. Hmm. We have so many young people who watch this show, tune into our content. And, and they're filled with all sorts of pressures right now, all sorts of things that feel distracting. What's your advice for the 20 year olds that are out there right now, dealing with a world that's very different than potentially how you and I grew up, but 
What's your advice for young people? Well, um, it's, it's don't be too hard on yourself and um, be patient. And so it's a kind of a mix that you have to go through, a bit of a dance. So on the one hand, you want to be serious about life. You're not, life doesn't go on forever. Your youth will be over in 10, 12 years. You better believe it, it goes faster than you can imagine, right? Okay, so take it seriously, all right? So you, can, you, you want to realize what your life's task is. You want to develop those skills that will make it so when you're in your 30s, things will come together as they fortunately did for me. It's a common story that 31, 32 is, is that year where things turn around for people, right? But on the other hand, you don't want to be so damn serious, so damned you know, uh, linear in your thinking. I've got to head down this path to make this amount of money, etc. You're young. Have some fun, have some adventure, have some excitement. But at the same time, also have that sense of discipline, that sense of purpose. You can do both things at the same time. Now, the circumstances now, it's easy for me, a boomer, I have to admit that, to preach to you when you have to gone through like two, we've gone through a pandemic, a, a, what looks like to be a recession. And then if you're a millennia, you went through another, you went through the crash in 08. It's easy for me to preach. You're dealing with really difficult circumstances. And there's what they call what the great resignation now, is that it, right? So a lot of people are rethinking their lives. They don't want to work at crap jobs just to get by. And I applaud that 100%, right? That's great. So you want to think about working for yourself is the ultimate position in this world. And even though times are difficult, even though it may seem like a, just a dream, there's so much potential out there for entrepreneurial spirit, for creating your own startup, for creating your own podcast, for going your own path in life. You don't have to follow other people. It's not like it was when I was growing up. There were things that were better back then, but there are things that were a lot worse, right? You have so many more options. It's just that you're not going to reach them. You're not going to be happy in this short time that you have to be alive unless you take it seriously, unless you learn skills and develop and go through an apprenticeship in your 20s, etc. So um, if you can balance those two and still have some fun and adventure and excitement like I did, I mean, I don't want to hold myself up as some model, but, you know, being an Irishman in Paris in my early 20s, you know, I was having adventures, right? So just don't listen to your parents go, I got to be making $100,000 when I'm 23 and go to law school and do all this stuff. You're going to burn out. So kind of understand your, I guess the main thing I would say is know who you are, know what, what you're, what you're, you know, deep down your core, what you love, what you hate, and what you were destined to create in this world. That's like the most important process you can go through. It sounds like you've helped so many people uncover that life path, figure out their gift. What do you feel like is your gift? Oh. Well, I don't know. You know, I, I don't want to get too wrapped up in myself here about, um, you know, because I'm sitting here talking on and on about my own life. But um, I guess what it was... Um, is that I didn't listen to other people. At so many turning points in my life, I could have been discouraged. People could have said, get the, you know, I had somebody say, Robert, you're never going to be a good writer in life. You know, you need to go to business school, etc." My parents tried to funnel me this way or that way. I was stubborn and I was rebellious and I did my own thing. And um, because of that, I have kind of a, 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 a different voice from other people, right? And when I look at books out there, I'm searching for that voice, for that voice of somebody who's different, who has something different to say, who has, speaks in a different tone of voice, that has their blood and their personality in their writing. And I don't find it often, but when I do, it's a great thing. And so to me, success in life is kind of being who you are. There's a famous expression of, of the great ancient Greek poet Pindar about become who you are. 
It's a process of becoming who you actually are and realizing what it is. So we talked about my weirdness earlier on and following that has allowed me to craft my own message, which is basically about opening your eyes up to the reality of the world and to what people are like. But I wasn't, I'm not able to do that unless I had ignored what other people tried to foist on me earlier on in life. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but that kind of was my gift or my message if I have one. Because I tell you, I'm not good at anything else. I can't fix things with my hands. I'm a terrible dancer. I'm totally tone deaf. I can't sing. You know, I'm fortunate I found the one thing that I'm good at, right? So. Took you 50 jobs, but you, yeah. yeah. What do you think is your legacy or what do you hope is your legacy? Well, um, I hope my legacy is that, uh, you know, I, I try to write things that are timeless, right? So I don't follow trends. I don't write about things that are going on right now today in the, news, in the newspaper or on, on, in, on the internet. I write about themes that are, to me, classic, that go back thousands of years, that are about what humans are really like, our animal nature, etc. So what I'm hoping is that there, 20, 30 years from now, the book feels timeless. And that, that is essentially that my legacy, that Robert hit upon some truth hit upon the reality of what it means to be a human being, and it's still relevant, as opposed to 30 years from now, people go, man, that book smells like 1998. That's not relevant at all. That thing is so passe. That would be a big disappointment to me. I won't be around to be disappointed. I'll be dead and buried. But my legacy, my hope, is that I hit kind of a core truth or reality about humans and that it stands up the time, you know, like Machiavelli. 500 years later, 500 years, yeah, 500, almost exactly 500 years afterwards, his stuff, some of it's dated, but most of it's like, wow, that's spot on, right? That's insane, you know, because he was such a, a realist. So my, if I could even begin to approach part of that, I would feel like that I, that would be my, hopefully my legacy, that I, hit upon the reality of our life in a timeless way. And what's next? Well, I'm doing a very strange book that'll probably surprise, maybe disappoint my readers, but I don't, it's all right. It's a book on what I call the sublime. And I hinted at it in, um, I have a chapter in the book that I did with 50 Cent about uh, death and mortality. And I, that is, a chapter called The Sublime, and then in the Laws of Human Nature, chapter 18 about confronting your mortality is also about the sublime. But essentially, it's a different tack for me. It's a, maybe, I hate to use the word, but maybe a quasi more spiritual book, if you will. And essentially, I'm saying that it's so strange to be alive. It's such a weird thing that, you know, 30,000 years ago, our ancestors were still in basically a stone age, our Paleolithic ancestors, you know, our hunter-gatherers. And here we are, look at this world, right? We're like reaching now the, with the new telescope, the, the, the web telescope that was launched. Look at what we're doing, who we are, just to be alive, just to see the world as it is, just to have these powers of consciousness is the strangest trip you could ever be on. Your life is like this weird voyage of 80 some years, if you're lucky to live that long. In a re it's like you're on continually on drugs. It should be like that. You should be continually waking up going, man, I'm conscious, I'm thinking, I'm able to look at, at the moon and be aware of it. I'm able to read history. How weird, but we don't have those thoughts. We grow around, we take everything for granted. We're immersed in our phones and our little trivial worlds and all the little bullshit scandals and things that are happening today that'll be forgotten about three days from now, etc. We're immersed in banality and triviality when the cosmos is so essentially awesome. And there's so many aspects of that awesomeness. How idiotic to waste your life mulling over things that are so unimportant when you're, you're literally surrounded by all these insane things. So each chapter is about the cosmos 
It's about evolution. It's about your childhood because childhood was the most sublime period in your life. Um, is about um, our ancient ancestors and pagan religions and how people thought much differently back then. I'm doing a chapter now on the brain and how the brain is the strain. The human brain is just the most remarkable thing in the, in perhaps in the cosmos as far as we know. It's complexity, it's power, it's speed, what it can create, what it can do. But we don't think about it that way. We take this for granted. We think computers are so much more interesting. So I'm writing a chapter on the brain. I have a chapter on animals and animal consciousness. About the last chapter will be, uh, guess what the last chapter is about? Sublime? Or is it, I mean, obviously the theme, but where are you going with the last chapter? Death. Death. <laughs> it's always the last chapter. It's always the last chapter. So, um, you know, because people who've had near-death experiences, I had one, not as strong as other people. There's nothing more sublime than that, than what you see when you, like, touch just very briefly on what the sensation is of your life fleeing out of you. It's a very, very sublime experience. So that's what I'm working on. It's taking me a long time, and I'm trying to hurry up so I can get, get the book out because people seem to be interested in it. But that's what I'm working on right now. Hopefully I'm alive to finish it. I think I will be, though. I think so, too. I don't think it'll disappoint. I think it sounds so inspirational. Yeah. Robert, you've written about you know, so many laws across your books. I'm curious if there are three principles that you feel like are most important for people to keep in mind and to live by. Well, uh, one of them is a law of power that I've kind of lived by, you know, consciously and inadvertently, which is interaction with boldness. So most people are just too timid in life. They're afraid of failure. They're afraid of making mistakes. If I never try anything, that I never have to put up with criticism. I never have to put up with people scrutinizing me, right? So most people end up being too shy, too timid in life. And you've got to get over that. And you've got to learn how to be bold with your ideas and with your actions. So I try to make each one of my books kind of a statement and, and impress people with like a strong, you know, idea and not be afraid of criticism and not being afraid of controversy. So boldness has gotten me through life and I think it's critically important in, in this day and age. The second thing is something we've talked about earlier but it's knowing who you are, knowing yourself in depth, shining that mirror, looking inside, deep inside of you, who you are and what makes you different. And going through that process in as profound a way as possible. To, to know, to understand deeply what makes you an individual, what separates you from your parents, your siblings, and your peers. And so that it's like having a radar system in you. So I know this about me, and now this person is offering me this job. No, that's not who I am. That's not suited for me. Get out of here. Somebody offers me something else. Yes, that's me. Okay, I'll take it. It's like an internal radar system that'll guide you through life. The third thing is, it's knowing about yourself, but it's also knowing about people. And it seems like an easy thing, but the problem most people have is we are self-absorbed. We're more interested in our own thoughts and ruminations and our own ideas than, than thoughts and ideas and experiences of other people. We will deny it, we'll, go, we'll die kicking and screaming, saying, no, that's not true, but it is true. It's because you're not listening to other people, you're not really fascinated by other people. And I'm saying empathy and the ability to truly listen to people and to get inside their skin and understand how they think, how they experience the world, how it's different to be them and what they're like, is a, not only a great form of therapy, because it gets you outside yourself, gets outside of your own self-absorption, but it's a very powerful tool. It will allow you to understand people on a deep level, understand their psychology, so you won't be making all kinds of mistakes and saying things exactly the wrong thing to say to this person or that person. So developing a high-level sensitivity to people, and it begins with being fascinated by people and their differences in their world. And that's, to me, an extremely important skill in life. Boldness in action, know yourself, be fascinated by other people. Yeah. That's three pretty powerful principles. What's the best advice you ever received? Well, um, I'm not somebody who listens to advice, which is a problem. But I managed to get okay, do okay without that. But I, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, 
She said, um, it was in the 90s, the 1990s, um, not the 1890s, and I was in my depressed period of life, right? And um, I was working in Hollywood, and I was miserable. And I was trying to write screenplays, and I was also trying to write theater and fiction, etc. She said, Robert, you can't have it both ways. You can't be trying to make a lot of money and be doing the things that you love. You have to do one or the other in life, right? And then things will happen for you. But you're trying to cut it both ways. You're trying to become really successful in Hollywood, but also be doing things that are really important to you. And if you're going to be successful in Hollywood, you have to learn to do things that aren't that exciting to you personally. So choose one or the other. And then when, when the came time for the book, I kind of realized the wisdom of that. And I decided what matters for me here is not making the money, is not ha being a, a bestseller. It's just writing the best book possible, right? It was like, okay, here I am. This is my one opportunity in life. If, I, if money becomes my motivating factor, it changes everything that I do. It changes how I write, it changes how I approach it. It makes me more like other people. It, it, it takes away that edge and that boldness factor that I was talking about. But if I ignore that and I just do what I love, do what excites me, you know, still keeping in mind that there's a public that's going to read it. It's not like I completely ignore that. But I do what excites me and, and, and makes me thrilled, which is revealing all that dark side of human nature, etc. And I do it in a way that satisfies me and, and kind of gets all my juices flowing and my blood going, then maybe it will make money in the end. And so I chose that path, which she, she was right. And so I think people who read the book understand that this was something that meant something to the writer. He put a lot of himself into it. He didn't write this book just to make money. I think people can smell that in, 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 a, in a creative work, that it was either done for money or it was done for love. So I tell people often, particularly in creative ventures, do what you love and then the money will come to you, hopefully, if you do it well. So that was sort of, if I've explained it at all, that was sort of the best advice I got. It's powerful. Robert Green, it was an honor. Thank you. I know that our audience has been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thanks. Uh, thanks. Equally here. I really enjoyed it. The icons of this show, and hopefully you're getting a sense of it now, iconic people, iconic locations. My name is Tyler Way. Stay tuned for what we've got coming next. <laughs>